We have two scripture readings this morning, first from the Gospel of Luke and second from the book of Paul to the Roman church. So Luke 15, 11 through 19. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? And here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. And from Romans 7, verses 14 through 25. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self. But I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh, I am a slave to the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite you to come on a journey with me over the next several months when I am in the pulpit to come and explore the spirituality found in a program which has worked and is working for people, millions and millions of people around the world since 1935. But I begin with a disclaimer. It's not a journey people necessarily welcome with open arms. It involves losing, failing, dismantling, getting crushed at times, and any other painful term you might think of. And if you adhere to it, it involves nothing less than a complete change in attitude and behavior. But the rewards? A depth of spiritual life like you've never seen before. In his book, Falling Upward, A Spirituality for the Two Halves of Life, 
Father Richard Rohr talks about a spiritual shift which occurs in all of us as we move along through our adult spiritual lives. He says, sooner or later, if you are on any classic spiritual schedule, some event, person, death, idea, or relationship will enter your life that you simply cannot deal with using your present skill set, your acquired knowledge, or your strong willpower, end quote. He talks about it kind of being a necessary falling, but it's excruciating because it's about moving out of an ego-driven life toward a more God-centered life. Now that may sound simplistic, but it's true. And it's echoed by all of the spiritual masters through the ages. Those who lose their lives find it. It's just a spiritual truth. A perfect, perfect example of it is the prodigal son. Now Ed preached on this text last month, but we're gonna look at it from another perspective. And we're focusing this morning just on the first part of the story. And you know the story. The wealthy man has two sons, one of them a bit derelict and the other uber responsible. And the derelict son says, I want my share of all that I'm due. I want it all and I want it now. And his father most assuredly pained to see the choices that his son is making, but wise enough to let him experience the potential consequences of his actions, gives him his share of his future inheritance. So the son takes off, living high on the hog, drinking, womanizing, spending, you name it, living large with no thought of tomorrow. Drinks on the house. Life was one big party until it wasn't. One hangover too many awakened him to the fact that supplies of booze and money don't last forever. That those friends leave when you're not buying anymore and when you're just left with the hangover and yourself and the remorse, it's not fun. What did I do? Why did I say it? And nothing is pretty about it. That same scenario is still constantly played out all the time in people's lives with different drugs of choice. It may be relationships or food or drugs, prescription or otherwise, or money or porn or sex or shopping or relationships. Whatever it is over which you have no power once you engage in it. And for some, the pain comes in being in relationship with someone who is addicted. And the helplessness which comes from not being able to help them, no matter how much you love them or try to change them. And the more one tries to control or fix the problem or person, the crazier the situation becomes and the person or the helper becomes. Herein lies the problem. Lack of power, that is our dilemma. Writes Bill Wilson in the genius text known as the big book, the basic text for those in Alcoholics Anonymous and other 12-step programs based on the principles of AA. I get it. In my own life, I've tried so many avenues to try to feel the desperation, to try not to feel the desperation of powerlessness 
as I faced a normal part of life. I tried education. I tried jobs. I tried anger. And oh, yes, I tried alcohol, relationships, and even religiosity, serious religious practice to make me feel right with the world and with God. And the sad piece is none of it worked. It didn't work because I was, it was all fueled with the idea that if I just got it right, I would be okay. I would be accepted and loved. It's so sad, but it's also so human. Bill Wilson writes, first of all, we had to quit playing God. Indeed, it is through recognition of our powerlessness and an admittance and acceptance of our shortcomings that real and authentic power is attained. But the movement to that place is one of the longest distances some will ever travel. Others never find it. But we all know change is hard, right? And it's serious business for those who deal with addictive behaviors, as well as those who love them. There's a slogan in 12-step groups that states, change or die. Easier said than done, right? W.H. Auden says, we would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the present and let our illusions die. It's so tragic. But it's true of so many people. Tightly wound, we desperately cling on to our precious ideas about who we think we are, how things ought to be, and how others ought to treat us. And many times, unbeknownst to us, others are looking on with pity because they know the fall is coming. And they hope that it will happen before too many people get destroyed in its wake. And for the sick and suffering person, the inside torment, which results, is often too much to bear. Paul says it so accurately in the book of Romans. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. In chapter 7, he sounds so tormented and it almost makes your heart break. But then when all else fails and the end of the rope is reached, faced with an utterly hopeless situation come these words in step one of Alcoholics Anonymous. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. It's long been recognized that addiction is not a moral choice. In the case of alcoholism, medical professionals have said that those who cannot process alcohol in their bodies, like social drinkers, simply have an allergy to the substance which has the power to kill them, literally, drive them crazy, or send them to prison. Once an addict has any of the substance in their system, the phenomena of craving, of craving begins, and they have no control over what happens next. With drugs, it's a little bit different. But they're not bad people. They're just sick. But the things which happen when they drink sometimes affect those around them in very painful ways. 
One of my most memorable interviews when I was a reporter on camera for News 12 Westchester was a woman in her 30s. She's a single mother, still, and a daughter of a prominent doctor in Westchester. And she said she had a wonderful childhood, and she's a devout Catholic. But for whatever reason, she started drinking from her parents' liquor cabinet when she was just in elementary school. And by the time she was in high school, she says that she was doing drugs, and eventually it led to her doing heroin. There were few days, she told me, when she went to high school clean and sober. Her bottom came when her father was dying of cancer, and she went and used the morphine that he was taking as he was dying for her own use, and missed saying goodbye to him when he died because she was down in the Bronx scoring heroin. She hit bottom and started into a 12-step recovery program and has stayed clean and sober ever since then. It's been now 35 years. And you'd never know from looking at her today of her past drug and alcohol use. Her spiritual life is deeper than most people I've ever met. And she helps people like me who are willing to go to great lengths to meet God, grow, and change. But it came with a great price. For many, the prospect of staying sober long-term when they first try is beyond comprehension. And that is where the genius of the 12-step program is. It's the reliance on others who are no better and no worse than they are, who walk the path together one day at a time while they learn a new way of living without a substance. We, it starts off in step one, admitted we were powerless. The assurance that we are not alone in our deepest pain is one of the spiritual promises throughout the scriptures. And it's also stated at the very beginning of the 12 steps. As people attend meetings in humble church basements often, listening to one another share their experience, strength, and hope in recovery, people begin to change. They come to understand and possibly believe that through a power greater than themselves, they too may be brought back to a right way of thinking, to a sane way of behaving, free from substances. There's an element of unmistakable spirituality as people share from their hearts their own pain with no pretense, no masks, and they're accepted and loved just because they exist. It's the embodiment of God's astounding love as I've rarely seen in other places. And yet I've experienced it at every meeting I've ever been to now almost 30 years. It's remarkable. And so step two is taken. It says, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Again, it's the concept of we. This is not a solo journey. There are no experts in 12-step communities. And the anonymity, which is a guiding principle, keeps people's egos in check. It's simply one person one drunk, as they say, sharing their struggles with another drunk and providing service to those who are in pain and asking for help. It's not unlike the practice we're encouraged to take at Jesus' behest of bearing one another's burdens. Somehow when we share our pain with others and take on theirs, 
our own load becomes lighter, doesn't it? It's profound. The nature of that power greater than ourselves is talked a lot about in the text of Alcoholic Anonymous. And some who are atheists are encouraged to find something, anything, outside of themselves. Others may call that being God. Whatever it is, the founders are clear that it is to be a God of your own understanding. And in the big book, Bill Wilson makes one of the most moving and generous statements about the nature of that spiritual path. He says, we found that God does not make too hard terms with those who seek him. To us, the realm of the spirit is broad, roomy, all-inclusive, never exclusive or forbidding to those who earnestly seek. It is open, we believe, to all. That's on page 46. When your conception of God is of a loving and a benevolent being, one who has the power to restore you to sane living and true desire to do it, we're better able to make the decision to surrender and give up control and move forward. Step three then says, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood God. When step three is taken, which is a huge move for many people, then the person is ready to reflect on the aspects of their lives which have been harmful to others and kept them from God's love. More on that next month when we look at steps four through six. But if only churches would be that generous in their approach to people struggling with humanity, as 12 steppers are urged to do so, perhaps they would experience more spiritual growth and an increase in membership. But interestingly, the AA program has its roots in the church. The 12 steps were inspired by the Oxford movement, an effort of spiritual revival in the Anglican church in the United Kingdom in the 19th century, a reaction against the secularization of the time. Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob Silkworth, the co-founders of AA, took the form of the Oxford Group's spiritual principles and formed their own version of the 12 steps to suit their purposes. Here are some statistics according to the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence. Alcohol is the most commonly used addictive substance in the United States. 17.6 million people, or one in every 12 adults, suffer from alcohol use or dependence along with several million more who engage in risky binge drinking patterns that could lead to alcohol problems. More than half of all adults have a family history of alcoholism or problem drinking. And more than seven million children live in a household where at least one parent is dependent on or has abused alcohol and 88,000 deaths are annually attributed to excessive alcohol use, and that's up from 79,000 only a decade ago. And alcoholism is the third leading lifestyle-related cause of death in the nation. Those statistics are astounding to me. In a lot of ways, those with addictions have a leg up on those who don't in terms of the spiritual path. Because those who look like they have it all together, who are successful on the outside, have the potential to think that they have gotten to their position without the help of a power greater than themselves. It's all too easy, especially in this area of the country 
when we are called to believe the myth of the self-made man or woman. That hard work versus God's grace is all that's needed. That the pressures to keep it all together, to look good physically and every other way, to perform, to be perfect, to earn, to provide, so that future generations can perform and be perfect and earn and provide, you know, you get it. There's little room for imperfection in our society, for human beingness, the dismantling of one's ego in those cases, to see personal imperfection, and to acknowledge a need for God can be really tough. But every bit as essential for spiritual growth, as it is for those with more noticeable outer flaws of addiction. I've heard some say that the entire program of recovery can be summed up in a prayer called the Serenity Prayer. Perhaps you know it. It's often, it's attributed to Reinhold Niebuhr, who was a professor and ethicist at Union Theological Seminary for over 30 years. And that's where Ed Horseman went. It was supposedly written in 1926 when he was just 34 years old. Such wisdom at that age. The short version is printed on the back of your bulletin and goes like this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. But Niebuhr continues the prayer in a longer version in this way, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting the hardship as the pathway to peace, taking as he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. May it be so. Alleluia. Amen.